Superpowers on the Superpower Up podcast, the show that lifts the voice of love from orgasms to superpowers and everything in between. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sex, Love, and Superpowers podcast show. I am your host, Tatiana Berenday, and today I am really thrilled to be joined by Catherine and Nick North. We are going to be discussing how gender influences self-image. I have a feeling this is going to be a really, really juicy and epic conversation, so I'm very excited for it. Let me tell you a little bit about these two before we dive in. First-time filmmakers Catherine and Nick fell in love, turned their world upside down, and lived to tell about it. Their first joint project is this personal documentary about how they fell in love, became a blended family with five kids, and navigated Nick's gender transition from female to male. Their short documentary, Just Another Beautiful Family, premiered at the Calgary International Film Festival and won the Audience Choice Award for Alberta Short in September 2019. This is the first of many projects they hope to do together, in addition to co-parenting, driving the minivan, and doing the dishes, as part of their Beautiful Families project, which shares stories about all sorts of underrepresented and non-traditional families, because every family is a beautiful family. Couldn't agree more. And I'm just going to give you just a little taste of them individually. Nick North is a husband, a dad to five kids, and a branding strategist. He also has a history of living as a woman, a wife, a mom who birthed four children, a photographer, and a corporate type. When Nick embraced his identity and came out as transgender, he realized just how much gender affects the way we think, talk, sell, and function. Hence, this is what we are going to be discussing today. And Catherine North grew up as a missionary kid, yet is now a foul-mouthed, heathen, mystic life coach, I love that, queer feminist, and mother of five married to a trans man. She changed her name to Catherine North at age 42 just because she wanted to, and she might be the only life coach in the world who doesn't believe in the law of attraction. So I want to welcome you both so much uh, to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us. We're so happy to be here. Absolutely. So I'm going to start out asking you what your superpowers are, maybe starting with Nick. Yeah, my superpower is just, um, I think it's just the fact that I've lived so many different types of life that I really can put my my um, feet in anyone's shoes. You know, I've done the whole stay-at-home mom thing and a work-from-home mom and a full-time working mom and... I also am now a dad and uh, do the provider and, you know, working and stay at home and sort of different versions of that as well. And so because I've, I know what it's like to both um, be mansplained to and also to be in like the rigid box of masculinity, I have this ability to sort of, you know, see all different perspectives. Yeah, which I'm sure very few people can say that they have. Yeah. And Catherine, what are your superpowers? I would say one of my best superpowers is my imagination. And it uh, saved me when I was a kid and I felt so confused by the world around me. Um, And in in many ways, it's been the impetus behind everything I've created, my coaching business, my writing, um, even the ability to imagine a totally different life you know, falling in love with Nick, moving to Canada, going from being a solo single mom to a married mom of five, then, you know, Nick transitioning. Like, I think that my ability to imagine something completely different than the current reality I'm living um, is something that has really helped me 
and will continue to help me. Mm -hmm. And now I like when I um, interview couples to ask what the superpower is of the entity that's created when, when two come together as one in a couple. I would say our superpower is our ability to be kind and blunt. This is one of the, the phrases that has guided us. And it means that we are willing to have really, really squirmy conversations. <laughs> mm-hmm. our, our rule of thumb is if you can be kind and blunt, great. And if you can't be both, you have to be blunt. That that, you know, that truthfulness um, is sort of the, the, the bedrock, uh, even when it's uncomfortable. For I us. love that. I love that so much because I think that people shy away. I mean, people naturally shy away from conflict. I think mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm. women tend to shy away from conflict generally more. Um, and so to, to have that as a guiding rule of thumb, I think is, is pretty awesome because it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to speak my truth regardless of, of how that, how, what feelings you might have about that. Right. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. easier to talk about it than to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a scary thing mm-hmm. to speak truth, especially when you don't know if it's like, oh, is this going to be the end of our connection, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think um, the whole kind and blunt thing, it also, it's, it comes back to like that, the gender norms and the way that we're socialized. And as someone who is socialized female, I, and someone who is socialized Canadian, I avoid conflict at all costs, uh, <laughs> every way, shape, form. And it's really, it's, it was not a helpful thing for me. It was not um, useful really in my life. I think it helped me a lot as a kid because I had a little bit of a tumultuous upbringing and lots of different uh, people in and out of my house and sort of fending for myself a little bit. So, so being able to avoid conflict and sort of fit in was helpful then, but it hindered me later when I didn't know how to have like natural conflict within myself. And I didn't know how to um, be who I needed to be when it was uncomfortable. I I didn't have that um, buffer or that like muscle of conflict built in. And so I was just who everyone needed me to be for way too long. And I think um, this is a, like a bedrock in our relationship because we, we think that like for us to be together really happily and super in love 40 years from now, we have to make sure that we keep telling our truths, even if it's uncomfortable. And even if that means conflict, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And being willing to see it through to the end. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. So, um, you just said some really poignant things that I want to dive into more, but we do have to take a quick break before we go to break. Will you tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about the film or about your individual work? Yeah, you can find out more about the film at our website, beautiful families project. Um, you can watch the whole film online there. It's 20 minutes. It's free. Go take a look. Beautifulfamiliesproject.com. And you can find us individually. I'm declare dominion on all social platforms and that's my website and Nick is and I am epic danger on all of my social platforms. Awesome. Go check out that film. It's free. It's very moving. It's very impactful. Do it. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break. We are talking with Catherine and Nick North about how gender influences self image. This is going to be a juicy conversation. So you're going to want to stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts. And we want to thank each of you for making Superpower Up the number one podcast network for personal development and spiritual growth. Because people like you have the courage to say that mindfulness, healthy living, disrupting reality, the pursuit of consciousness, responsible entrepreneurship, and radical parenting matter. We now amass over 1 million downloads monthly in more than 90 countries. Our numbers keep growing because there are far more people willing to live divergently than mass media wants to acknowledge. For you, the change makers, the light bearers, the way showers, we say thank you. If you're ready to take the next step in your evolution, go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz. And as Neva Lee Rekla, our youngest podcaster, likes to remind us, remember, we all have superpowers and we can change the world. Okay, we are back. So... I really want to dive into to the meat of this topic because it's it's a hot one culturally right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so many misconceptions about about transgender experience, right? And I probably only know a small fraction of them. And so I, I'd be curious to just hear from you out, out the gate. What do you feel like are some of the the largest misconceptions or the most common misconceptions that people have about transgender folk, about that community, about that experience. Hmm. That's no one's ever asked me that before. That's a good one. Uh, I think that the, some of the common misconceptions are just based on what we have as narratives um, publicly. So when we see trans people, we see them living, um, like when we see them in TV shows and whatnot, they're often living on the streets. They have no family or friends. They, um, it's all about the medical transition and about their surgeries. They end up murdered and disenfranchised and like they end up on a CSI show. And that is the narrative that we sort of have. Um, the other thing is that there's like the other side of that is that yes, that and it's an important narrative to have to show the struggles that people face but we also have families and parents and people that love us and people that stand beside us. And the problem with only showing the, the oppression that trans folks deal with is that people don't get to see themselves being loved. They don't get to see hope. Mm-hmm. They don't get to see that like, look, my wife loves the crap out of me, whether I have a penis or not. That is like the least important part of our relationship for her anyway. Like, for, and, and I would, I would, you know, challenge most folks to be like, is the most important part of my relationship with my spouse, their genitals. And usually and the answer is, is no. If it is, maybe you need to check if you're you in a relationship. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think it's important to like, that's this big misconception that like we only have this struggle. We do have the struggle, but the other side is that we have really beautiful lives with people that love us and that stand by us and, that my kids really don't care that I'm trans. And most of the time I think they forget um, that there can be that side of things too. So that's one huge misconception. What do you think, babe? I think there's a misconception that transgender people are scary. And I think that that just comes from, you know, ignorance and just not knowing and not knowing what you don't know. Um, and and I was scared at the beginning because I didn't know. I didn't know what it was going to mean for you to be transgender. I didn't know um, what kind of an arc that was going to set our whole family on. And I just didn't really know very many trans people. 
And so I think I was affected by that narrative that you've talked about. And I think we're just, we're so afraid of the unknown. And, and most people don't at least think that they know a trans person. They probably do, but you might not even know that you know a trans person. And so I think a lot of it is just based on, um, on, on fear of the unknown. Yeah, which is a huge thing. Um, and there are people out there actively working to spread scary stories. The whole debate over bathrooms and, you know, is some scary trans person going to do something terrible to one of your kids in a bathroom? Absolute ridiculous nonsense completely has nothing to do with facts or data or what actually, who actually does do scary things to kids in bathrooms. And so some right. of it is right. Just people just not knowing. Um, but there are people out there who are maliciously spreading horrible rumors and misinformation too. But that comes from fear also. I mean, at mm -hmm. least in my experience of working with humans, <laughs> yeah. know, we, tend, we tend to hate that which we're the most afraid of because mm -hmm. it's easier to hate and it gives us more power or seemingly. We feel like it, yeah. We feel like we have yeah. more power, right, mm -hmm. if, we're, if we can be in attack mode um, mm -hmm. versus actually an inquiry and, and curiosity. Yeah. Um, one thing I absolutely loved in the film is when, you know, <laughs> you're like, people are like, oh, haven't you thought about the children, you know, and, um, sorry, I mean, um, and, and you're like, well, no, we didn't, we didn't think about how this was going to impact the kids at all. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, of course, you know, we went to therapy, we, we, we planned it. And then when, when finally you told the children, they were like, oh yeah, whatever, like, it was not a big deal at all. Yeah, they cared, but they didn't care. They, it obviously affected them. And it, you know, it, there were things that they had questions about later and it took time to sink in and whatnot, but mm -hmm. it wasn't, they didn't have a story tied to it. And so there wasn't this like, oh, this is a wrong thing. And I think uh, us as a family, we have always talked about how, people can be whatever version of themselves that they can imagine. But like we're bigger than just who we see ourselves now. And that, that like we are an open and accepting family. And so therefore that was sort of their reaction right from the get go. Well, yeah. I mean, to, to begin with, you guys weren't a traditional family, right? You were living together as a lesbian couple with five kids who not all of them were your shared well, obviously, they're not your shared biological children if, because you know, yeah. men and eggs make a kid. Um, so, I mean, you, you kind of were starting out from a non-traditional stance. So I'm sure your kids were sort of prepped for a little bit of that anyway. Right? Yeah, I think um, the, both, both of our, all of our children, the divorce of their bio parents was definitely more like interesting or more... Uh, of an impactful moment than my transition for sure. Mm -hmm. So did you both start out in heterosexual, normal, normative couples before you met each other? Or how did that work? That was something that wasn't in the film. That I was so curious about like, how did you two meet? How did, how did, how did your relationship start? Yeah, we, um, we met, we were friends. We were, I was in a heteronormative relationship and um, Catherine was a single mom of one and we were just best friends. And, you know, as sometimes happens, best friends fall in love and then have to get divorced. And then, you know, 
moved to Canada. Moved to Canada. So, uh, <laughs> as happens sometimes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I had been in a hetero relationship, but I was what I would have said bisexual mm-hmm. for years. Um, now I would use the word pansexual because it's just a little bit of a broader category. Um, I fall in love with people based on who they are. Not really. I just really don't care about their parts. Um, so I was pansexual, but I had been in a heterosexual relationship uh, with my daughter's father. We had broken up years before. I had moved from Japan to Portland, and I was I was a happy solo mom there for for years. And I didn't date anybody, so I was just like nothing. <laughs> and so Nick, and then you you were in a heteronormative relationship. I think I personally find it totally fascinating the arc that your life has taken and what that must have been like or is like for you internally to go from, I mean, if we're talking about how gender influences self-image, right, to go from being a, a mom of four, like a birthing woman in a heterosexual coupling to then breaking out of that into a lesbian relationship to then really deciding that it was time to claim your, your true identity as a man. I mean, that's like a huge, huge journey to take. And I'm, it's been a journey for sure. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just so curious to hear more about what your internal process has been along that journey. I think it's been a lot of just coming home to myself. I knew who I was as a kid, as a small kid. I, I remember feeling like I knew who I was and then knowing that that wasn't okay and that to keep myself safe and to, I had to like play this role. And I worked really, really, really hard to play the role. And I played it so much that I sort of tricked myself into like, yeah. nope, this is who I am. Um, and I did all the things that a person could do to prove that I could be good at being a woman. I did the whole woman experience all the way. I birthed the children. I, uh, I had them be a C-section. I had them drug free and vaginally. I had them all the ways that one can have a kid. I did it all. I wore the nail polish. I, I did all the things. And so I tried really hard at being a woman. Um, and every time someone would, you know, accidentally he me or think that I was a man, I felt like, Oh no, everyone's fuck. Everyone's going to figure it out. Like quick, be better at being a woman, play the game harder. Um, and I don't know that I, that I did that consciously. I think that it was a subconscious thing, but I, I know that there was so much fear around everyone realizing. Um, But then at the same time, being pregnant was miserable because then everyone knew that I really was a woman. And like... Well, pregnancy just isn't that comfortable to me. Yeah, it's terrible. (laughs) Um, It was like, oh, people know that I have these parts. And I always was that that person who fit in with the guys. Um, And so it it was really difficult to like, I felt like it was outing me sort of as like, having those biological parts and being that type of person um, when I knew that I was a man and that like, Oh, everyone else sees me as a woman, but I know that I'm a man inside. And it it was sort of this really tricky conflicting time for me. Um, And then I, you sort of just like push it all down and block it all out and keep yourself safe because that's what humans do. And until it, it was like, you know, it hurt more to keep myself safe than it did to be my, to be me. 
Um, and it, it sort of felt like coming home. It's coming home to who I was, like the little boy that was inside of me. And the person that I couldn't be then, I get to be that person now. And it's sort of like unpeeling an, like an onion or like going layers in deeper or, you know, coming in deeper home to myself. It's, there's so many mixed metaphors. <laughs> Would you say that your relationship with Catherine, I mean, it seems like she was a very supportive partner. Um, Except when you, I'm a total bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that word anymore, but she can. <laughs> Would you say that, that her love and support of you played a role in terms of you feeling like safer to come home to yourself? Yeah, Catherine is the safest place I've ever known in my whole life. She... She is this uh, steady, you know, river that is just safe. She's got this way of bringing out the best and worst parts of me, as as all couples do, or as like all soulmates maybe do. Um, and she just, she was so much her and loved me so much and made it so safe for me that... I could start to believe that there was a place for me in the world. I mean, that's like, to me, that's like the highest definition of love right there. Yeah. I'm lucky. <laughs> what would you say? We're grinning at each other like fools over here. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it. You I can can't feel see it. that. No, oh. making, no making out during the interview. Um, but we still fight over dishes and laundry and all that <laughs> sure. stuff too, just, just to, you know, keep it real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would you say were some of the biggest fears that you had going into the surgery and the actually deciding to physically change your appearance in a drastic way? There were absolutely no fears about the change of my appearance. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't about... Um, you couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. If I could have done the surgery three years earlier, my mental health would have been so much better. My Everything would have been better. I, there was no part of me that was hesitant. It was this like... Um, I think the scariest thing for me actually was, was letting go of control and knowing that I was going to be basically naked and unconscious and exposed to this room full of people whom I am a statistic and a person and like not a person, but a number two. Mm. And they maybe have never seen a trans person and I, you're just at your most vulnerable and there's no way to know what everyone's saying and thinking. And am I a freak to them? And what's the conversation like? And there's all these things that you're just so vulnerable. Um, I mean, even I wear glasses and I'm, super, super blind without them. And like for the 45 minutes before the surgery, they're like in this like waiting room and they have like you're in your surgery, like gurney bed thing, whatever in a hallway area and you don't have your glasses on and everyone else is walking by you and they can see you, but you can't see them. Like there's just all this vulnerability and being part of a population that is known to be taken advantage of and is, uh, known to be sort of seen as like uh, an anomaly or like people can have interesting kind of a morbid thing. curiosity yeah. um, specifically with our genitals let's just mm -hmm. be honest and so i you know it was something that i was worried about and that was where i think most of my fear came from 
also with the pain of recovery. I was like, oh, okay, like you get one shot to do this. There's a couple of things. A, you get one shot to do this and I hope that it goes really well. Uh, and so there's the like, the, the, I've waited three years for this moment and here it is. Um, and then the other is like, oh, I'm going to be in a lot of pain for the next month and that's going to suck. Yeah, yeah. But it was never, should I do this? Is this the right thing? That that was not. There is no, there is no part of me that questioned that. And did you have the complete transformation? Forgive my um, ignorance. And if I ask a question that you don't feel comfortable answering, it's totally in your right to not answer it. Um, I'm just a very curious person by nature, which is why I run a podcast. There you go. Yeah. I, so I, I've had top surgery um, and I have had a hysterectomy and so far that is all that is happening. Um, but the biggest transformation started when you took testosterone yeah. and when you transitioned publicly, you began dressing differently. Yeah. You held yourself differently. People referred to you differently. And so in many ways, the surgeries were like afterthoughts, but they were just sort of like the final pieces in the puzzle. Yeah. It, the bigger, you know, the surgery for top surgery was really huge for me because it, it allowed me to stop having to bind. It allowed mm-hmm. me to see the body like that I, in my clothes that I was supposed to see, but way more trans, like transformative uh, than that was starting testosterone, which not all trans people choose to do. Not all trans people choose to medically transition at all. They don't, there's certain parts of their body that do or don't bother them. Um, and, and that those things don't, make us less or more our identity. They're just the body we have. And sometimes the there's reasons why people can't have surgery or it's, you know, medically not safe or they don't, they just don't want it. And that's, that's perfectly valid too. Um, but for me, I knew that like, it was, mo- it was just how I saw myself in the mirror. It's more about, it's like how the world treated me and how I could see myself and the like going on testosterone and having the world see me as the man that I always had seen myself as was the most important thing. So for me within a year, I was like, Oh, okay. Like everything in better is everything in life is better than it was. Mm. Just because of the testosterone, just because the world could see me the way I saw myself. Yeah. What are some of the biggest differences that you noticed in terms of how people treated you as a female versus a male? (laughs) This is a funny question because when we first became friends, I was an ardent feminist and had been for years and and Nick was not so feminist. And as he has transitioned, it's been quite vindicating for me when he's like, oh my God, (laughs) we're making it up. It's real. (laughs) I'm slightly giving him a hard time. Yes. Because I knew that it I, I know that it's real. I knew, I knew that it was real then. I think yeah. that... But you were shocked by how intense the difference was. Yeah. Because, I, but when you say it is real, like what is it? What are, what are we talking about here? The way that we treat women like they are A, men's property, B, less than, C, less smart than, uh, like I can go on for all the letters that, mm-hmm. that basically... I, I could say something so smart before and I'd have to back it up. And now I could say something asinine and the world is like, ooh, you spoke. I believe it. Tell me more about that. Yeah. 
There you have it, folks. In case you were curious, <laughs> there's some confirmation right there from someone who's walked both. Are making them feel crazy and gaslighting them because it's just the water we're in. It's the like air we breathe. Go ask someone to explain air, like what it feels like to breathe air, and they can't do it. It's right. men cannot understand their privilege because they've never lived not in it. It's not their fault. It doesn't mean that they don't have a responsibility to listen to stories and to make changes and to make better decisions and to take action and to and to like believe women, but it's not their fault that they can't see it because it, the air that they breathe is just very different. Just like I didn't realize how bad it was living as a woman until all of a sudden my words mattered until I was a lot, was like offered more space just because I appeared male rather than appearing female. Well, and that's the part that I find so fascinating is that like you didn't necessarily give much credence to that as a woman. As a woman, I didn't realize how bad it was. I didn't realize the number of times that I was not included in a conversation because of my gender. That number of times that I was looked down upon because of my gender, or I was just thought like, oh, that's that's not that important. That's just her over there. Um, You know, things like two thirds of Americans have never had a female boss. So two thirds of America, like the, that means that we believe that men are two times better at leading than women are based solely on our socialization. That doesn't even mean that those are our actual true thoughts, but those are like our unconscious bias. Right. That's set up and reinforced that, by the culture. Set that up and we reinforced by, exactly. Um, you know, things like clothing. Let's just talk about pockets in women's clothing for a second. <laughs> or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about like women's dress shirts, how they're not long enough to actually be tucked in. If you lift your arms above your head, your dress shirt untucks instantly about how you're supposed to not be distracting in the workplace and yet all pants hug women's asses. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, women are expected to wear high heels, but then can't keep up with the man walking quickly to the boardroom or such whatever other bullshit that exists, you know, there are, if you just look at clothing and how we we set up men for success in their clothing and women for failure, like men get to wear suits and women have to freeze. What I like, how is, how are those things fair? If you look at even the air conditioning levels set in government buildings across North America, there's a study that shows that like even the level, uh, the temperature is set in a, for a man in a suit like, with a jacket. Yeah, but basically yeah. it's like the patriarchy has set temperatures. And so, <laughs> like... That's how always, bad it is. That's how bad it is. Architecture. Like, let's be... Like, let's talk about how many times women spend their entire 20-minute break in a meeting waiting for a bathroom and men yeah. walk in and pee and get out and then get to grab a snack and a coffee and they're fueled up and ready to go back into the meeting and women are running from the bathroom because they had to wait in line because there's two stalls. Right. Right. Like some of the other like kind of tangible things that we were surprised by were things like you noticed that when you, you started speaking in a conversation with like a group of people, other people stopped and listened to you. And you were like, I didn't even know that that wasn't happening before until it started happening. Mm -hmm. Any conversation to do with money, you're having a completely different experience as a, a male entrepreneur 
right? When you're like, oh, these are my prices. This is what I charge. People don't push back. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I didn't even realize that they were always pushing back on my pricing. But it was because I didn't change my business. I just changed the, the way I looked on my website. All the copy was the same. The words were all the same. The pricing was all the same. And then people were in, all of a sudden like, oh, I'll pay that in a heartbeat versus do you, I, that feels kind of steep. Do you have any different starter package or like, I don't think that it's worth that much money. Like I went from having all female clients to having about a 50, 50 split. Nothing changed, but the gender on my website. Yeah, that's fascinating. Although I just to play devil's advocate for a second, Mm -hmm. you did, you did say that, I mean, your confidence in who you are shifted dramatically when you started to take testosterone. Do you think that that could also play somewhat of a role in some of those interactions? Uh, I don't think so because I would say that the first six months of being on testosterone, my confidence was actually worse. Mm-hmm. That the, it was a really scary it time was, for you. It was really terrifying because yeah. all of a sudden I was sometimes being gendered as male and sometimes being gendered as female and I didn't fit anywhere and I felt like a freak. You were always braced for something terrible for someone to say something awful. Like, I didn't know what bathroom to use. If I went into the men's bathroom, it was uncomfortable. And like people gave me weird looks and I was worried about my physical safety. And if I went into a women's bathroom, I often was dragged out of the bathroom by a woman screaming, saying I was trying to rape her. Like n- not wow, actually you actually had that experience. I'm uh, not actually screaming rape, but I have had probably three or four different women physically grab me and yell at me and pull me out of a bathroom. I've had people call security on me and it was because I did, I, there was no space for me. Um, and that this is why having, you know, non-gendered bathrooms and having safe spaces for non-binary people matter so much because it was so hard to be in that in-between space. It was dangerous for me in a way that it is not now in that, that first amount of time. And yet when people read me as male instantly, I mattered more. Wow. I'm really sorry that you had that experience. Um, me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm hoping that this, I mean, this is part of why I wanted to have you both on this show because I think conversations like this really matter. And I think it's really important to hear that we're, you know, we're dealing with humans here, right? We're all people and we all have feelings and we all bleed the same color when you cut our skin, right? And, um, and, and we all have traumas and we all have our, our instinctual reactions to things. But, you know, just remember that. Like, we're dealing with people here. And yeah. how, we, how we treat each other matters and it has an impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say, you know, on that, on that vein has been, was like the biggest impact in your community? Like, how was that, how was your transition received by your community, um, by your neighborhood? What was that experience like? Yeah, it went better than we anticipated. Um, we live Mm -hmm. in a small town outside of a city, um, in the suburbs and it's, it both conservative, uh, and, we didn't know how it would go. We didn't know. Um, but people, when we've given them the chance to show up as their best selves, they have here. We, I, haven't, have, yeah. I haven't really had any, I haven't had any terrible experiences in our town, in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, 
people have, you know, we live in a town of 30,000 people. So it's not like it's this big uh, anonymous place. I transitioning with so many kids and kids that are school age meant that it wasn't, I didn't do a stealth transition where like I started all over again and no one knew I was trans. That's not, hasn't been my experience. Um, That it was a public thing. It was like the kids teachers knew and they talked about it in classrooms and, and it, you know, it was kind of fine. Uh, and that is not the experience for everyone. Um, I, I know there are trans women in our town who have not had that same experience mm-hmm. and some of them had, have had to move away. Um, and I think that that once again speaks to the patriarchy and gender and how it's okay uh, to be more male, but it's not okay to be female. Um, and so it's not like I'm saying everything's been perfect, but it, it has been better than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. And that's um, and that's amazing that they had conversations about it in the classroom. I was going to ask how how what the interaction with the teachers and the school was like. Uh, I was basically I think that mm, talking to it, having a great administrator, so the principal at our school was great, mm-hmm. and so that super great. It was a top down like this is just what it is. She set the tone, mm-hmm. and our kids, we gave them language and spoke to them enough about how to explain it the best that we could and the best that was age appropriate. And our, it was like by kid by kid, you know, one of our kids is really like, you know, my dad, he used to be my mom, but now it's my dad, not my other dad. <laughs> like, he very much is like, let me tell everyone all of the things. And then we have another kid who's just as like, it's not, it's the least important part about our family. And she just isn't interested. Like, not that she's not interested, but it's like, just this, like, who cares? It's this little tiny thing. So kid by kid, they led what felt best to them. Hmm. Um, if there is like like one tenant or philosophy that you feel like you could really drive in for people listening to this today, like what do you feel like is the most important takeaway that someone could walk away from this conversation with? I think the most important thing is that whatever version of yourself you have hidden away whatever version of yourself you're like, this is who I am, but the world is too hard and too scary. And it's, it's not worth it um, to be that person or it's not, I'm not allowed to be that person. Even if that person is like, Oh, I'm a lawyer and I just want to be an artist who writes things like there is space for who you, who you are deep down inside. And it's scary to bring that person to the front, but it's scarier to never have that person ever at all. I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean, suicide is like, that's a huge thing in the trans population, right? That's the, the suicide rates are are really high, but I think you mean they are who you are. Yeah. But no matter who you are, if you look at, you know, in the trans population, suicide rates are a real issue. Um, But we know that having one person that, is truly accepting and makes space for that person to be themselves changes those, those outcomes like exponentially. That's the number one factor. If we look at trans youth is that, do they have a safe person to come out to and that will let them be who they are. And if they do, we find that their suicide rates and attempts drop down to actually the normal teen rates. And so it doesn't, but I think that that's probably true for most people that that it doesn't matter if you're trans or if you are gay or if you 
are a missionary kid who doesn't believe in Jesus. <laughs> that like, <laughs> right? That, that like, yeah. there is this next step in this place for you to be who you are. There is space in this world for you to be you. It doesn't necessarily, just because you don't have that space right that second in that moment in your life, that there will be space for you to be you later. It does require some bravery, um, but there's space. Hmm. Well said. Well, I want to... I want to thank you both so much for taking the time out of your day to come be on the show today. I feel very impacted by this conversation and I hope our listeners do too. Um, Just powerful and and much needed. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you so much for continuing to tune in. I know this is a powerful conversation. If you have not yet joined us in the Superpowers Are Real group on Facebook, come and do so. Let us know your thoughts. Are there things I didn't ask that you wanted to know more about? Are there topics that we're not covering on the show that you want us to cover? Let us know. We want to hear you. And if you want to play more deeply with us in the realm of superpowers and and all of that fun magic, you can go to superpowerexperts.com forward slash programs and check out our offerings there. Um, Once again, Catherine and Nick, thank you so much. Um, You're beautiful. And I wish you both so much goodness and to just exponentially expand your impact in the world because I know it's a positive one. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, until next time, go out and love yourself so that you can love the world more deeply. Many blessings. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today.